The scripture reading tonight is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is the word of the Lord. David McCain, a 33-year-old Minnesota man, became the second American killed in fighting for ISIS in Iraq last weekend. ISIS, as, as we know, the Islamic state in Iraq and Syria, has as its goal the establishment of a caliphate or a kingdom under Islamic law that the aim of which is to ultimately expand across the entire world. A PBS report says that as many as 2,500 Europeans and Americans have left their homes, left their countries, traveled to Syria to join ISIS. And when recruits join ISIS, they embrace quite joyfully a very different value system than the one that is found in the West. They rather freely surrender their freedoms for what they describe as the joy of participating in the establishment of this new kingdom. They're often willing to be martyrs for their faith, typically suicide bombers. ISIS puts new recruits into training camps and shows them how to be terrorists, rooting the vision in some teachings from the Quran. And if you, if you look at these things on the media and what people are saying about it, one of the things that shocks us is how on earth can people change so dramatically? How can they leave behind a normal life and, and, and so quickly become uh, murderers and, and people who are very aggressively uh, devoted to a cause that seems to be totally counter to everything that they believed in in the past? And... I think the reason for this is because they are embracing a different kingdom. They are embracing a different reign, a different rule, a different master, a different leader. And when you come under the rule of a different leader, you begin to be shaped by that leader's vision and values. Well, 2,000 years ago, about... I don't know, four or five hundred years south of where ISIS is today, Jesus began proclaiming a very different kingdom with very different goals, but he began by recruiting followers. 
And shortly after he recruited those followers, he put together a training camp. It was a wandering three-year training camp where he prepared these followers to be citizens of this new kingdom, uh, disciples of this new kingdom, soldiers in this new kingdom. And he didn't leave behind any uh, YouTube videos, uh, but he left behind the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a training manual for new recruits in the kingdom of God. Uh, The sermon records what men and women look like when they allow their behavior to be shaped by the reign of God. And, And the sermon begins with eight statements that describe qualities of men and women who have come under the influence of God's rule. And Jesus calls these people blessed. Uh, The Latin word is beatus, which is where we get uh, the phrase beatitudes. The Greek word is makarios. And the Greeks used it in a very different way. They called their gods makarios. They called their gods blessed. Why? Because a god was beyond life and suffering and death. And so they would say, blessed are the gods because they have so much power and so many resources and are so immortal, they don't suffer. Later, if you study the history of the word, the Greeks would call a very wealthy man or a very prominent donor or a great athlete as blessed. So, So for the Greeks... To be blessed was to have incredible resources, to be above the fray, to have uh, done tremendous things in the world. And Jesus chooses this word in the opening words of his sermon and, and, and turns it on its head. And it's as if he is saying, okay, I know uh, who uh, the blessed are in the world that you live in. I know who is esteemed. I know who is valued. I know who is lifted up and exalted. I know who everyone wants to be. Now let me tell you who is blessed in my kingdom. Let me point out to you the qualities of the people that I am drawn to. Let me show you the kinds of people who experience fellowship with me in the deepest way. And that's what the Beatitudes address. There are eight of them. Uh, I don't know how far we'll get tonight, um, but we'll, we'll dive in. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the, the word for poor refers to physical poor in this case, people without resources. When Matthew adds the phrase in spirit, he, he is talking about spiritual resources. Blessed are the people who desperately feel their need for God. Blessed are the people who feel their spiritual failure. Blessed are the people that realize that they cannot do anything for God on their own. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in our fellows class on Friday, we're, we're, in the fall, we teach a course on uh, the narrative of Scripture. And so we were looking at the story of Adam and Eve's rebellion. And in Genesis 2 and 3, we're trying to come up with a definition of sin. And I, I drew that picture that we often use of the house with a basement. And if we can have that slide up uh, again. And one of the things that we have uh, often said is that the, 
the Christian is like a house with a basement with a first floor and then down beneath a hidden room. And when it comes to thinking about sin, sometimes Christians define sin on the first floor. And we leave it at that. In other words, sin is doing or not doing certain behaviors or feeling or not feeling certain emotions. And so if you just look at sin that way, sin is... uh, Uh, not looking at pornography. Sin is not being generous. Sin is saying an angry word. Uh, Sin is uh, continually being uh, gossipy about someone. Now, the problem with the first floor definition of sin is that if you hang around long enough, And if you have a measure of self-discipline and some good accountability structures, you can mostly get to a place of managing it. And you don't really need to be poor in spirit to teach yourself to not say mean things. You don't really need to be desperate for God to get off the internet. You can figure out a way to do that. So what happens if we define sin a little more deeply? And why am I going here? Because I think this is the thrust of the whole sermon. Is that Jesus is redefining sin and righteousness in a deeper deeper way. Well, Friday morning we looked at Jeremiah 2.13 to figure this out. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Now, a cistern is a well. Living water is fresh water. And so God is saying to people who live in a desert, you know, I provide for you a continual source of fresh water, but you reject me and and choose to drink from muddy, broken wells that leak and will eventually kill you. So sin is drinking from a muddy well. Now, as we looked at Adam and Eve in the garden on on Friday morning, we noticed that that they had two basic needs. Uh, You could use different words to describe this. This is just sort of obvious. Uh, Security and significance. Uh, In the garden, Adam and Eve uh, felt very secure. They were secure in God's love. They also felt significant. They had a purpose. Their life counted for something. They were supposed to extend God's dominion over the earth. But as soon as sin happens, all of this changes. After the fall, Adam and Eve are not secure in God's love. After the fall, Adam and Eve don't feel significant. And the first thing that they do is make fig leaves. They hide. They start to figure out on their own how to protect themselves apart from God. We could put it like this. Uh, They develop deep, they have deep longings for security and significance they develop wrong strategies for fulfilling those longings. They start to look at muddy wells to find life. And so we start to find our security in, say, other people. We we start to find significance in what we can achieve. In a basement understanding of sin, we look deeper And we look at the idolatry of our own hearts. We look at 
why I want to look at the Internet. We look at why I get close to people in relationships and then back away. We look at why I feel anxious all the time. We look at why I am so angry. And as you go down the steps into the basement, and you realize that it's not just I'm angry, but it's I'm an idolater. And I've made a goal out of something I never should have made a goal out of. And you've blocked my goal. This goal was going to give me life. This goal was my God. This goal was my idol. And you're in the way of my idol. You're keeping me from finding life. And so I'm depressed. Well, now I'm, I'm entering my sinfulness in a whole new way. And I don't know about you, but I, I've been doing this game a long time. I, I can manage the first floor pretty well. But if you push me into my basement, and you start to show me my idolatry, you start to show me why my emotions are there, what they're rooted in, the bentness of my heart, the depravity of my heart, that's when I start to say, God, I need the cross. See, I don't think we can get to poverty of spirit until we get to true brokenness. At the end of the class, one of the students said, you know, I think this summer I finally went down in the basement. I started to get in touch with my deepest longings. I started to see the wrong strategies that I was using uh, to protect myself, to, to care for myself. But I don't know how to get out of the basement. I feel stuck in the basement. I think she's just beginning to know what poverty of spirit is. Because if you've never been there, if you've never been to the point of I can't change this. I don't think you know poverty of spirit. Well, the the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus says, you know, there's, there's something else I value in my citizens. There's something else that, that I look for in my heroes. There's something else that I'm really drawn to in my people, and that's grief. Can you, can you imagine how shocking this would have been? <laughs> About as shocking as it is today. He says, here's who I want. I want people who know how to mourn. I thought about that promise earlier this week. I don't know if any of you heard an interview with uh, Jim Foley's mother, Diane Foley, on, uh, on NPR. Uh, he, of course, was the journalist who was murdered last month. And um, I actually <laughs> don't, don't mean this in the wrong way, but I have been persuaded to try to learn how to Twitter. So I've got a Twitter account now, and I really do. Um, scary thought. Uh, it's at Doug Bannister. That's real creative. And I, I, uh, I posted the interview. So uh, if, if you'd like to, to watch it, uh, it, it's one of the most profound interviews I've ever 
I've ever heard. And she, Diane is a devout Roman Catholic, and she was the embodiment of grace. She was on for eight minutes, and the reporter, uh, trying to do what reporters do, kept pushing her, and uh, she would just deflect everything and say uh, how much she appreciated the Danish reporter that was in captivity with her son, who memorized a letter from her son and brought it to them. When the reporter said, aren't you mad because the government didn't uh, bail him out, she just deflected it, turned it around. At the end of the interview, she said, God bless you. <laughs> it, it was, I thought this woman was just beheaded, her son was just beheaded on videotape. I've never in my life heard an interview like that. And I, I think what she was tasting was the comfort of the kingdom. Blessed are you, Diane Foley, because Jesus will comfort those who mourn. Now, we can mourn about lots of things. Uh, mourning can be just what Daniel prayed for tonight, deeply concerned about the way things are in the world, being broken over the slowness of God's justice, being sorrowful over my sins and failings. My sense is that, that we don't know how to do this very well, that we don't mourn well. Uh, a friend of mine who's 60 uh, recently told me that he only this past month started to grieve the death of his mother 30 years earlier. Somehow stopping to mourn our losses seems counterproductive. Well, but if we don't mourn, if we don't mourn the things that disappoint us, if we don't mourn the losses, if we just get out there and keep pushing, we miss the comfort of God. And I think we miss some sort of treasure in our spiritual growth when we work through grief and disappointment too quickly. And Polly Tulloch is developing a reputation around our city as a master teacher of a certain kind of yoga designed to, to lead people into deep relaxation. And there's a name for it, I'm sure. I don't know what it is. Her husband once said it was drooling yoga, but I don't think that's the technical term. But evidently that's what happens when you get relaxed. And someone told me recently that many people, if not most people at the end of a 90-minute session, are weeping. And I said, um, I said, why? And they said, well, when you get that quiet, when you slow down that much, a lot of us get in touch with grief that we've buried for a long time. And I can't help but wonder... You know, if, if we're carrying that kind of grief around with us and we haven't given it to the Lord, we haven't resolved it, we haven't fully wept over it, what, what, what kind of sickness does that, what kind of infection sets in when we do that? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Clarence Jordan translated the New Testament, and he renders this one, Joyful are those whose wills are surrendered to God, for they will inherit the earth. And he, he explains it. He says, in English, the word meek has come to be about, mean about the same thing as weak or harmless. It's thought that a meek person is something of a doormat upon which everyone wipes his feet. A timid soul who lives in mortal fear of offending his fellow creatures. But nothing could be more foreign to the biblical use of the word. It's used in particular to describe two persons, Moses, Numbers 12, and Jesus, Matthew 11. One of them defied the might of Egypt, and the other couldn't be cowed by a powerful Roman official. Both of them seemed absolutely fearless in the face of men, and completely surrendered to the will of God. Meek people won't listen to any man, no matter what his power or influence, who tries to make them compromise or disobey their master's voice. They surrender their wills to God so completely that God's will becomes their will, and they become God's workhorses on earth. James Foley, I believe, is an example of a, of a meek person. And the more I read about his story this week, uh, the more I came to believe that. Uh, as you probably know, he was held hostage in Libya for 44 days in 2001. And later he wrote in his Marquette alumni magazine that uh, during that captivity and in between torture, he would say the rosary with a fellow hostages, hostage, Claire Gillis, he said that helped him get through the captivity. And he wrote, Claire and I prayed together out loud. It felt energizing to speak our weaknesses and hopes together as if in a conversation with God rather than silently and alone. And he spoke, he did graduate work at uh, the School of Journalism at Northwestern, and he, he spoke uh, shortly after he got out of Libya about whether or not he would go back and one of the things that he said was that he felt that he had a, a kind of calling to go into parts of the world like this and expose injustice and tell the story of, of suffering people. And so, you know, I, I had not really known his story. I didn't realize that he had been in captivity for a month and a half, was home for a few months, and went right back. And it, it struck me that he was not dumb and he knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew where it very well could end up. And I think that's what meekness is. It's, you know, my life is yours, Lord. If I'm supposed to spend it taking pictures on a Syrian battlefield and end it real early, I will. It's that sense of being so yielded to God and his purposes that you're just going to go there regardless of what happens. Well, the last one we'll look at tonight. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And of the many explanations I read this week, I like this one the best. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who, because they long to see God's final triumph over evil and his kingdom fully established, long also to do what is right and just themselves. 
So I think the idea is that Jesus says, you know, the, the people that I'm most drawn to, the, the people that I most celebrate, are, are the ones that are starving to do my will. That more than anything else, they, they want to know me, they want to know my ways, and they want to live it out. And that reminds me again of going back to the idea of our deep longings and our wrong strategies. We do all have deep longings for security and significance. If God wants to meet those longings, He wants to make you secure. He wants to make you feel significant. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's to hunger and thirst for a relationship with God in which we we do know His love. We do know our purpose, and we go out and live it. But so often we settle for lesser things. We eat bad food. We hunger and thirst for God, but we satisfy it with all sorts of junk food. C.S. Lewis put it like this in this famous quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Does that describe your life? Are you making mud pies in the slum when God has offered you a vacation at the beach? You know, one of the things you could just ask sometime this week or even tonight is, what am I most hungry for? What am I most thirsty for? When I'm honest, when I'm not sitting in a Bible study giving the right answer, when when I'm most Honest, what is the driving passion of my life? Well, as a Christian, I would argue that your driving passion of your life is Jesus. Have you forgotten that? What does get you up in the morning? What burns in your soul? Is it righteousness? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I probably spent a little too much time researching ISIS stuff this week. And one of the things that's that's quite disturbing is how savvy they've become in their use of social media. And I watched a recruitment video of a young Canadian man. And it reminded me of videos I'd seen at missions conferences when I was in seminary. And he was a clean-cut, articulate young man, uh, about college age. Uh, He had a a headdress on. uh, Arabic music was playing in the background. And he tells the camera, uh, he says, look, I had a great life in Canada. I loved fishing. I loved my family. I had a decent job. But I wanted something more. I wanted a cause that I could die for. He said, why don't you join me? Why don't you come over? Because this is worth living for. This is worth dying for. And then the, the, the film shows a clip of him running across the battlefield 
and then it goes dark, and uh, the, the tagline is that he was martyred for the cause. And his face kind of haunts me, and, and, I, and I, I keep thinking, okay, thousands of young people like this all over the world are going to Syria to join ISIS. Why aren't they flocking to the kingdom of God? And, and I do wonder, and I don't know the answer, but I do wonder if, if it's because we've rubbed off all the rough edges of his message to make it more user-friendly. We toned it down and smoothed it over and repackaged it so it, it nicely fits with Western secular values. And so really, essentially, what we have in the Southern American church is uh, Western secular values plus a little Jesus. And I don't think that's that attractive. And I'm not sure it's what the kingdom looks like. I know I'm guilty of this. I initially was going to call the sermon Steps to Happiness. Seriously. And I was going to take two weeks to take each beatitude and look at it as a principle leading to true happiness. And there's a way you can get there and twist it around and all that. You could do that. But... The reason why I was doing it is because I have ingrained in my mind, I don't know where from, but it's there, a desire that I must keep you listening, that I have to make it as user-friendly and practical as possible, that I need to hook you within the first 30 seconds, that I need to make it relevant or you won't come back. But this sermon isn't, it's not really about happiness. It's about the deep joy that comes from fully yielding your life to God. Diane Foster is, is not happy. But she knows the deep joy of the kingdom. So one of my prayers, and maybe you can pray this together, and as you talk about this with your people, we can work on this together. I just as I redid the sermon, I thought, I, I, wonder, I wonder what it would look like if we studied the Sermon on the Mount and I worried less about packaging it right and making it relevant and practical and what if we just sort of let it do its work in us? What, what would that be like? I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that the gospel is never relevant. The gospel is always at odds with the spirit of the age. So let's see if we can read the Sermon on the Mount this fall as Jesus intended it to be read. Let's pray. Let's pray.